Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. We're going to wonk out today. Policy geek. I always wanted to be governor of Texas. I was never going to be good with details, but I will try details today. My guest, Dave Marchese. Dave, how are you? I'm doing well, Chuck. How are you? All right. So I want to hear about your background, but I think we met in 98. I was actually doing a private placement for Energy Research Corporation, which now people know as Fuel Cell Energy, back when I was a banker at Stevens. And as I recall, I lobbed a cold call into Tom Glanville at Reliant, and he said, let me give it to the smartest person I I know. Everything about that, except for the last part where he said, let me give it to the monkey that works the spreadsheets and the uh, PowerPoints, is (laughs) correct. So, so that's where we met. Yeah. Was I mean, like late nineties, right? Yeah, late nineties. Wow. I think it was ninety nine or two thousand. So, uh, because that was I was I started there in ninety nine. That was when I was doing fuel cell stuff with Reliant. Um, you know, it was one of those. I came from a construction background, went to business school, ended up. Uh, you know, you may recall that that was the time that everybody got out of business school and went to Enron, El Paso, Reliant. Uh, Dynagy, you know, we all, we were all the, these 25 year old, you know, smart, smartest you actually, guys in the You room, actually yeah. contemplated an offer from Enron with an offer from Goldman Sachs. Yeah. I mean, that's not well, too far fetched to, to say. You being someone theoretical, not me. But yes, <laughs> I had neither. I had, an, I had an offer from Goldman. They yanked it back. <laughs> that's a whole different story. Yeah. Never got an offer from Enron then. The uh, quick Enron aside, just because you know Tom. So what was really funny is I interned for Tom, and then I went to work for him full time. I could not get an in- interview with Enron at all. They were at Vanderbilt, where I went to under- undergrad and business school, and you know I couldn't get in the door. Even tried to show up, tried the old like sitting there ready for the interview. That didn't work either. So um, didn't know who I was. They're just like gone. So they find out I work for Glanville, who had just come over to Reliant from Enron. Then the phone started ringing. <laughs> and uh, but Tom had locked me up already. I, I really enjoyed doing uh, what I was doing. Uh, you know, didn't know that September 11th was going to happen. Enron was going to happen. Reliant stock would go to a dollar. None of that was none of that we saw coming. But when it did. Uh, Tom and I sold off all the investments we did there. Um, so I was in the secondary market for a little bit. And then I spent a year on the structuring desk at Reliant, learning swaps, options, derivatives, all the energy stuff. Uh, then I got in back into the private capital game, but on the storage side. So I spent 10 years at a private equity fund uh, called Haddington Ventures. And I think we probably saw each other off and on then. Uh, you know, Haddington was midstream focused. Uh, we were very storage focused. Um, was a great run. Really learned quite a bit from those guys. Uh, then got the itch to go start my own company. <sighs> I, I know. Fortunately, that never that never uh, caught me being a well, former private equity guy. But it, you know, look, it's Chuck Yates needs a job. The way <laughs> you get a job, I mean, that's my other joke, right? So it was so hard for me to find a job that I had to uh, create my own company twice. Nice. You know, there you I mean, go. Nobody, you know, who's going to hire me? Yeah. Uh, 
So got back by Energy Spectrum out of Dallas. Uh, great guys there uh, really supported that first iteration. We built an underground storage asset that we sold to Energy Transfer in March of last year. Uh, and then took a little bit of time, but not much. Had a set of acquisitions on the books. And um, we ended up buying two natural gas storage assets from Southern Company. Uh, that closed, the first asset closed in November. The second, it's here in Texas, uh, in Beaumont on Spindletop. The second one is in California, and that won't close until the CPUC approves it. And uh, I am actually looking forward to doing business in California. If I ever own an asset in California again, please just kick me square in the nuts. (laughs) It's, you know, my view on that, and I think it's part of what we're going to talk about today, which is uh, I believe that as underground storage developers, we have a unique skill set that's applicable to two of the biggest things in energy transition right now. One is hydrogen storage. The second is CO2 storage. And I think that uh, as participants in the California market and then as folks here in Texas, we're looking to add acreage to our position that we bought from Southern. Uh, when we do that, we'll have acreage for sequestration. Um And I think that California and the energy transition needs people like us because we do understand how to drill wells. I mean, we know how to, you know, take gases, put them underground and keep them there till you want them later. And if you don't want them later, we can keep them down there forever if that's what you want. So that's where I think that transition and using the, the people and the skills that we have here in Houston to, you know, grow that across the country is, is where we ought to go. I mean, we did it for wind in Texas. We became, for a while, I think we were, if Texas were a country, it would have been the largest wind uh, power producer and largest installed wind capacity in the world. And that came about for three reasons. The first is we're blessed with a resource. You've heard that before. And we have a lot of resources. Well, wind is one of them. But honestly, our resource is not that much bigger than anybody else's resource. It's just that we know how to develop things here in Texas. So we had a structure, a market structure in place. That was critical. And then there were economic supports for wind development. One of those was with the state. One of those was federal. And smart Texans and developers here got together and took advantage of those economic incentives of the market structure that existed and the natural resource we had and created, you know, the largest, if it were a country, the largest country in the world with wind power. We're in a position to do that with CO2 as well on sequestration. And so you're on the advisory board, right, for the Carbon Neutral Coalition, and that cor- that's Corby Robertson's effort. That's right, right. In there. So talk about that because it's my understanding we've got a lot of legislation that's Mm -hmm. potentially happening in austin here soon so keep going sure so gosh it's been almost two years now uh when the when we first saw that there were regulations that needed to be clarified on permitting for sequestration i think corby saw this coming uh, we, I work with Will Robertson, who I've known a long time too, and that was kind of how I got introduced to it. Yeah, I like Will. Same, and that—that's really how I got involved in this. You know, Will and I go back to similar ways that you and I go back, and um, he said, "Dave, you know, you—you're in. I see you're interested in 
underground storage. Uh, maybe you should participate. And this is, you know, a couple of years ago. So different world may have been COVID pre COVID. I can't, frankly, can't remember. Um, but what Corby put together is a group of folks in this carbon neutral coalition that have a diverse background that have a background in, um, you know, in my case, keeping gases underground and keeping them there. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we do some Denbury's on there, very active. Uh, they do a lot of work. Of course, they know CO2. But then you have other folks that maybe do some more um, like uh, land sequestration by growing grasses, some rice professors that do that. Um, and then on the hydrogen side, there's a whole group. I'm in the CO2 working group. There's a hydrogen working group as well. You know, that has more to do with sort of this creation and, and, um, and growth of the hydrogen infrastructure, which we also have here in Texas to start. Uh, you know, the most hydrogen pipeline in, I think, the world is in Texas right now. So <clears throat> they invited me to join and... Um, this advisory board and just talk to folks that were doing this. I have been working on some of this, uh, they call it it's the EPA uh, class six is the injection permit for CO2. I've been working on that for some time, was working on it at the prior iteration of Caliche, and now we've rebuilt that and we're, we're going to do it again. Um, the, what I think has been most effective about this organization, the Carbon Neutral Coalition, is that it's a it's a very steady hand, uh, and it it looks after landowners and some of the things that landowners feel like they need uh, if there's going to be more rules and regulations about CO two sequestration. It goes to environmental groups where, you know, how are we going to make sure that we are truly reducing CO2? Goes to industry. Uh, how do we implement these things and, and capture the CO2 and put it underground? And then, of course, folks like me, well, we'll keep it there. Um, I'm the guy with the shovel behind the elephant. I got you. Because my understanding of the, the issue, and it's very rudimentary, is we have rules, regulations, procedures in place to basically yank stuff out of the ground. Mm -hmm. Mineral owners, landowners, how we all play together or not play together nicely. But at least we know what the rules are. Yep. We don't really have the reverse in place, right? Is that kind of the fundamental problem? How do we're, we how do how do we stick stuff back in the we're ground? We're very close. I mean, we've okay. been so as a storage developer, I've I've been on on this issue, um, you know, as I've done gas storage in Texas, because you do need to get the consent of the landowner as well as the mineral owner. It's a funny thing. Um, and it's not even settled law who owns the space you create when you take a mineral out. And then when you think about the sequestration, what are we doing? We're injecting CO2 into a saline aquifer. So this is uh, I like to use the sponge analogy when I talk about reservoirs. You know, it's just a sponge full of water, oil, gas, whatever it is, and you stick a straw down there. Yep. And what we're doing is we're pushing and making a bubble in the sponge of CO2. Well, we're pushing this salt water out of the way. The trick that the the uh, where the mineral owners get involved is that that brine is a mineral and they have rights as mineral owners. Um, and 
also in other types of reservoirs, if you're putting CO2 into hydrocarbon reservoirs, then it's a little easier to understand sort of where the, the lines are drawn. But all of that can be simplified. And I think that's where we've got some good legislation in front of the, um, you know, the current legislature that uh, can solve a lot of these problems. So give me give me an example of that. What's a, what's a piece of legislation that's proposed? Who's for it? Who's against it? When are they going to vote? All that good stuff. Sure. Well, let's, and, wa- let's wonk. I'm I'm governor. I'm ready to sign. You, something. You're going to get me. I I get wonky on the technical and less about exactly how these things work. So you probably know more about how the legislature works than I do. Uh, but I will give you a general idea of what I know. Okay. Also, you know, given digital wild, wildcatters steals your uh, notes before you sit down, so I'm not allowed to have oh, notes. Yeah. And no so notes. I'm going to get bill numbers wrong and Perfect. sponsors wrong and all of that. Um, but generally, uh, there are a few areas that we're looking that that the carbon neutral coalition and others, uh, Texoga has also got a bill proposed around this uh, similar issue. So we're uh, carbon neutral and Texoga are working uh, on exactly the same issue as this idea of ownership for port of the pore space. So who owns it? Is it the surface? Is it the mineral? Let's get that straight. Um, you know, I think the obvious conflict there when people don't own both minerals and surface is one side says, I want to get paid. The other side says, I want to get paid. So right. I think that's the conflict. Um Generally, and the landowner's claim to to that is so so we take because we take oil or gas and both out of the reservoir, and then we say, "Wow, people are willing to pay us to take CO two out of the air and let's pump it down here mm-hmm. and leave it forever." the The landowner claim is all of that infrastructure is is going to be up here, and number two. Mineral owner only owned the oil. They did not own the dirt. And the judge back in 1850 in Pennsylvania said, I own the dirt all the way to the center. That's that's basically the concept. That's basically the concept. Okay, got it. Got it. And then, you know, you can, there's all, it starts to get into, well, can we work around the mineral owner? Can we, can we make sure we don't impede the mineral owner? You know, one of the things about these class six permits, uh, only a few have been issued. And the EPA would prefer, and I think we as as operators would prefer that you don't, you know, poke holes through the bubble of CO2. Like, let's make sure that you're not drilling through that CO2 we just put down there. I mean, there are probably safe ways to do it. Look, we drill through all different types of reservoirs without damaging the reservoirs. At the same time, you know, what we're looking for is to make sure that we have this, we can hold the CO2 there for between 50 and 100 years. That's sort of forever in our world. So where you also impact the mineral owner is the access to the mineral owner's mineral that might be below the bubble of CO2 that you have created. And there are solutions to that, directional drilling, you know, making different bubbles, however you want to look at that. But um I think broadly we're all aligned and I, I actually don't see cleaning up that issue as sort of one of the bigger issues. 
um, there is a liability issue, and uh, we this the CNC has worked with the legislature about you know trying to address who is liable for the long term of the CO two. You know, one of the the jokes I've heard is, well, I mean, what are you going to do? Create Lacroix? That's yeah. you know, I mean, see when CO two hits the water, right. and this is the water that we're disposing this of is saline water, so it's not drinkable. It's what did the between did eight the, and ten thousand feet? Yeah, deep. and what did it, the what did the Romans do when they wanted to really screw an enemy? They salted the field, salted. right? Yeah, that's you know? right. And so salt's bad. Salt's bad. There's yeah. the, these. This is salt water down. Uh, you know, some of the the Frio is like 6,000. Frio and Miocene are the two places we're looking. So North Dakota, as a state, um, solved this problem by saying, ah, we're taking all the, we, the state of North Dakota, took all the liability uh, for CO2 being released, you know, any sort of release. Because, you know, as part of getting this tax credit that's driving a lot of the economics around these projects, you have to certify to you know, the EPA and the IRS that, yes, you're keeping it down there. Um, so that is the state taking liability is a solution North Dakota went through, went with. That's, you know, not a very Texan way of doing things. We all like to, you know, say, hey, I'm I'm a developer. I'm, I'm going to be responsible, responsible operator. Right. Uh, so really what we're looking at uh, with the CNC is more of an approach of, you know, let's make sure that the the type of nuisance lawsuits that can sometimes uh, come around, you know, someone who's not really an effective party making a claim, uh, like someone coming in and saying, well, some CO2 leaked and therefore, because I live on the earth, I'm a claimant and I can sue you for the leak in your CO2. Whereas the landowner is not damaged, the locality is not damaged, no one in in that area is concerned that there's a little more CO2 in the air that's already, you know, a lot of CO2 and nitrogen. Right. Um, so I think that's an important bill. I think the the third thing is on the economic side. When let I go, me, let me ask you this about, and and maybe this is getting way too wonky, but when you look offshore and you have a lease from in effect, the federal government, right, mm -hmm. to, to work offshore. If you ever own that property, you are in the chain of title forever and you're mm -hmm. liable for something. Onshore, and I, I was like guilty of this, trust me, as a private equity guy, I mean, through sale and purchase agreements, we would push the liability off to whoever, you know, bought the asset from us, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, I didn't ever do it, but some unscrupulous people sold to companies that then turned around and went bankrupt. Have y'all kind of thought through that issue of, you know, because at the end of the day, some if it's not going to be the state of Texas, somebody's balance sheet is going to stand behind whatever problems are caused. Right. Is that getting too landman geeky for you? <laughs> not really. I mean, look, I get that question. Yeah. Right. I get that question from investors. Yeah. And, you know, are in, and, and from landowners, because we're in conversations with a lot of landowners about, you know, tens of thousands of acres. And the, the these questions come up, well, you know, look, Dave, I, you just sold that last company, Energy Transfer. What happens when you sell this one? I know you're promising me this, but like right. you won't be around. And, 
you know, we've done a couple of things in our models. We use a sinking fund uh, that would go with the asset. So, you know, that's one way to do it. Uh, insurance is another way to do it. Uh, the insurance companies are excited to sell expensive products. Um, <laughs> so right. I, I think, you know, I, I like the sinking fund idea and, and really putting a, a number on, <clears throat> look, this is a trust that will go with this asset as long as this asset's around and it's going to be there and the trust is there for, you know, the resolution of problems like this. Gotcha. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Some way to, some way to do that. Yeah. Cool. So who, okay. So we basically have this problem who owns the space and we're going to go figure out mineral land. We're going to try to limit in terms of just what kind of legisl- uh, litigation can be brought, who can be a claimant. That mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense because you don't want to be tied up in court. We're going to address some way, shape, or form, sinking fund, insurance, and the like. Who is a violently opposed to something in this and is going to gum up the works? What What's kind of the... Because what you just described to me seems that, you know, maybe you get a bottle of wine and six people get in a room and hash it all out. And it looks a bit like a Frankenstein. But then you get there, you have somebody, the Railroad Commission, whoever, implementing this. And it it takes shape over time and, and works reasonably well. Or is there a flamethrower that comes in. I don't know. It sounds thing. like you know how to do this. You may be Matthew McConaughey's Lieutenant governor. <laughs> um, I, you know, all right, all right, all right. Yeah. The, um, I don't, I don't know that there's violent opposition to any of what we're describing. Okay. Um, I do know that, uh, you know, I hate to even say the word, uh, there's, well, you're probably familiar with unionization. Uh, that is a real sticky subject with landowners, and we're trying to um, – landowners will have a violent I, – I didn't bring this up because to me it's not it's not an issue. We go and negotiate with landowners, and if they don't want to sell, we'll go find another place. But um, this issue – there's another issue which we don't have legislation out there about, but that is is being talked about, which is how do you make sure that you get – all of it and what happens if you have a holdout. And there were there were some bills proposed that had something that looked like a unitization. They didn't use the word. Um, and define unitization as you would, and I'll even take a stab at it uh, too, because mom's watching the podcast. And so let's <laughs> let's tell mom what unitization is. Okay. Well, I was I was here. You probably know it better than I do because I've never done it. So in the midstream or in storage, it's not something we do. We go out and we get all of it. My understanding of it is that it's a way to, it's, it's like condemnation we would do on a pipeline, uh, to where you would, if you've got 99% of the landowners, the 1% of the landowners get paid what you pay the other 99, but they have to sell. I don't. Is that yeah, I think I think the way I think about unitization and every land man watching this podcast right now is just about to cringe. But you know, you have you know, you've got let's say this square right here is the reservoir. Mm-hmm. And you've got 15 different people that have um that own pieces of this in here. 
And we can do one of two things. I can lease this 640 and I can go drill, but I'm actually draining this over here. Mm -hmm. And so if another oil and gas operator owns the offsetting ranch, we might sit there and compete with each other and spend too much CapEx chasing volumes and all. Why don't we just treat this whole square and all of the operators in there? Why don't we treat it as one and mm. we all get a percentage okay. of whatever we contribute? And that's creating a unit. Ah. And so you're basically I trying to take the ownership and the land position and convert it into a unit, which is actually the reservoir. So I don't believe that's what anybody's proposing on CO2. It's a different issue. It, and what it could, it, where, where I think it could play a part is I want to inject CO2 into a reservoir. And if that reservoir is just bigger than the people I lease, you know, they have what's called force unitization. Mm -hmm. in, in Oklahoma, they call it force pooling, where okay. we can, to your concept, we can make that 1% participate. Uh, yeah, I guess what, and, and this is a great conversation because I've never, I hear people use the word unitization and I just used it wrong. So I think in, the in concept the way you we, were saying was forced pooling. It's not even forced pooling, right? Because the only people you're impacting when you CO2 sequester are the people on the property that, that own the property that's directly above. Otherwise you're, you've got a problem. So what we do in storage, this, I never understood this because you just described in, in a simple way, thanks, hey mom, <laughs> um, about how that works in the upstream. In the midstream, what we would do for storage is we determine where that, because we're making a bubble. Because you're making it out of a salt cavern. Well, so no, this is in a reservoir. I've okay. done this in a reservoir. Okay. We're making a bubble in, in the, the sponge is the unit. Right. Okay, we're making a we're sticking straws in and we're making bubbles right. in the sponge. My bubble never leaves the sponge. And as long as I lease all of the sponge, I'm not impacting anybody else except for the sponge. So I go lease the whole sponge. And if right. I can't lease the whole sponge, I don't have a project. And why I think the legislation has to address um, unitization and potentially forced unitization is because the economic value is created when you lease the whole sponge. Mm -hmm. And if you can't lease the whole sponge, you don't do it. Yep. But now we're saying somebody owns the space. And if I, if I come here and I just lease the small little uh, spot and I start forcing stuff, if I'm the, the, the farm next over and my space is getting filled, but I didn't lease to you, that that's why you're going to have to address that concept right. because I, yeah I'm I'm not gonna, I'm just going to go to that farm next door because you can model I got these cool 3D models on where it's going to go I mean look you know underground it's not always right. going to go exactly where you think it's going to go or or come but, out like or you come think out. it's yeah. going <laughs> unfortunately too. had some of those <laughs> so I you know I still I have a storage developer's mindset is you go get we not only do we lease the sponge we lease we we do buffer rights outside of where we think it's going to yeah. go, and you know you just do that. Like the yeah. I'm currently negotiating on four thousand acres, and uh, on those four thousand acres, 
we'll probably put three wells and and looking at where those three bubbles and are in 3d <coughs> excuse me um looking at where those three bubbles are in 3d they won't come anywhere near the property boundaries and we're doing that on purpose like we're using right. that entire acreage as both storage space and buffer space and i i think that's maybe what's being missed a little bit is that you know look we don't need uh, i as a developer i can't speak for the cnc i can't yeah. speak for other developers as i approach this i don't even need what you just described as force pooling i yeah. just all i Th need is let's see theoretically it. if we're going to save the planet at some point and we have to force a lot down there these concepts potentially pop well, up I think it's the other thing is a lot of the folks and we have some of these bigger organizations as part of CNC and otherwise they're, they're securing 50,000 acres, a hundred thousand acres of CO2 sequestration rights. And so they want to be able to put anywhere on that 150,000 acres, um, you know, a well and put the bubble. Well, inside that 150,000 acres, there's probably some checkerboarding that needs to be cleaned up. And right. it seems like they want to use this to clean that up. That's and it's probably, me, and, and it's probably just easier to address it now. Yeah. Anyway, as right. we're, as we're doing well, legislation. So that makes a lot of yeah, sense. And, and in the end, I mean, my view is I, I wouldn't be for anything and I wouldn't be part of an organization that was for you know, taking something away from a landowner and not compensating them in exactly the same way as your other landowners are compensated. Like that right. to me is, this is not who I am. Right. And I don't think, you know, having dealt with the CNC folks they're that's not who they are either. Sure. Sure. Yeah. No. And, and at the end of the day, we just, even if we have bad rules, it's better to have rules. Yeah. Have it, the rules. It, it kills me as a libertarian to, <laughs> to, to actually say that. So so that's cool. So, so this is happening right now yes. kind of, and do we expect something past maybe this session or? Yes, this or session. Soon? Okay. And, and as a libertarian, you skipped over the stuff, the, the incentives that I think are important that you might not like because it's money uh, going. Yeah. I know it's incentives. Yeah. But you know, a couple of things are happening. I don't know if you're familiar with the section 313 tax abatements. This is, you know, we've, I've used these in the past, big projects. This is not just, this is across industry where you can go. If you're contemplating putting a project in, you know, Wharton County versus Harris County, you would go to the two counties and you would say, look, you know, as a storage provider or as somebody who's building a big asset, you know, my three biggest costs are, people, taxes, and insurance. So we would go to the taxing authorities and say, look, we are, we have a choice between location A and location B, and those tax incentives would bring us to the conclusion that your location A is better. Would you please, you know, think about abating those taxes? And the 313, section 313 allowed that. Um, we've done it on prior projects. Um, that my understanding maybe had some not so great actors like you had described earlier that took advantage of that and got some deals and didn't really deliver the jobs. Typically you have to, you know, you have to commit to local procurement, uh, and bringing jobs, you know, both of which, uh, we did on our last project and made sure that, I mean, we track this stuff on spreadsheets and, and once a quarter, you know, show it to the counties and the taxing authorities. 
So 313 is coming back uh, in a, I shouldn't say that, it's, it's a different type of tax abatement that really needs to be passed to make Texas competitive. Louisiana has this in spades. Um, so projects, especially where we are on the Golden Triangle, you can put a project uh, in you know, Jefferson County or you can put it right across the river in Louisiana. And that is one of those where you'll see that push and pull because the tax, the, the taxes will make a big difference. So that's important to us. And, and then, what would the legislation do that's being proposed in Texas? Basically give counties the ability to give a bigger tax break? Just to give one at all. Give it's, one at it's all. It's gone. Okay, 313 is gone. Gotcha. In okay. the, the last legislature, or I'm not sure exactly it's how sunset. 313 died. Yeah. yeah, okay. 313 died and hasn't been replaced. So this is replacing that with something that's, you know, maybe got a little more oversight and a little more, okay. you know, it's, it's tighter. So that's important. Um, also, there are currently in the TCEQ, uh, programs and there are dollars in the budget for uh, something called the TERP, which is there. These TERP funds are for um, uh, improvements uh, to reduce pollution. And so, what some of the current legislation has proposed is using TERP dollars uh, in a way that allows the acknowledgement that equipment that reduces CO2 is reducing pollution, which the EPA says. And I think, you know, regardless of your definition of pollution, I think it's still in there. So cutting loose some dollars that we otherwise have in the budget to incentivize these projects. And this goes back to my whole, uh, let's do what we did in CO2 capture and sequestration here in Texas that we did for wind. And that what you need is you, we got the federal incentives, so we've got this 45Q. Uh, what would be great are some investment incentives, and there are programs like TERP uh, that allow for investment, uh, investment tax credits uh, or investment uh, dollars uh, from programs for capture and sequestration projects. And so a couple of the bills are around that. It's, it is less in line with your libertarian leanings. Um, but at the same time, it's, look, it makes us competitive. And that's, you know, you look at what happened with wind and we ended up with billions of dollars of federal money in the state of Texas invested in the ground uh, because we had these other incentives. In that case, it was the, the structure of the rec market, the renewable energy credits. And that um, really allowed us to attract all of that capital. So what we're trying to do is use these to attract federal capital and attract projects and attract customers to the state of Texas. You know, it's interesting as a libertarian, you have these mixed emotions. It's like the motorcycle helmet ball, right? Libertarian in me is like, you want to ride without a helmet? Great. Knock yourself out. The person that pays monthly for a family insurance plan is like, yeah. no, idiot, you have to wear a helmet because I don't <laughs> want to pay for you to be on life support for 20 years, you know? Exactly. And so it's it's the mixed emotions. So I get the total point because at the end of the day, if we're going to pump a bunch of CO2 in the ground, if we're going to have mm -hmm. sequestration, 
might as well be doing it here in Texas because you're right. right. We've got the skill set for for it. Um, and I like I like what you're sitting here saying is we got to have some some rules on just how this works so we can get beyond years and years of 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 suing each other over this. Let's have some rules and then let's allow the counties to provide some tax breaks for it so we can compete with other states because the idiots in Louisiana and Oklahoma will figure this out too. And then it sounds like being able to use some of the state already approved funds uh, on these projects as well. So how do people reach the Carbon Neutral Coalition? Well, we've got a website. Um, I think we will most likely, hopefully some people will be listening to this because of a LinkedIn post that they saw. CNC has been pretty active uh, posting some of these things on LinkedIn. You can reach out that way. Uh, And then... You know, there are, if there's contact information that people need, you know, they can reach out to Kalichi or they can reach out to the CNC to get specific folks to talk to on that. And I think generally, too, there's just the, not just CNC, not just what I'm trying to discuss here, but this is an interesting legislature in the, there, there are a lot of reasons why it's a cool time in Texas. And I think as citizens here, it's important that we go read the stuff, talk to your, um, you know, talk to your representatives. And it, it sounds almost a little cheesy, like talk to your representatives. But at the same time, I think we, the, those representatives here in the state do a great job of listening to their constituents. And I think we as constituents can do a great job by being educated about some of the bills that are there, not just the ones I talked about, and seeing what's important to us and saying those things to our legislature. And well, you know, I had, I had Will Franklin on the podcast who ran for yeah. a state rep um, this previous cycle, and he said this, and I believe I'm quoting it correctly: "There is not an energy professional serving." in the legislature right now. It's a bunch of lawyers and I'm not here to denigrate lawyers, but we can bitch about the government if we want to, or we can actually participate in the process like you're saying. And, and it goes a long way. If somebody that puts in underground storage is sitting there talking about, okay, guys, let's figure out who owns the uh, space. Mm -hmm. You should, you should have a say in that. I'd, I'd elect you to, (laughs) <laughs> to 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 have a say in that. I am so, not running for anything. I uh, think it's been thank you to you know the founders of the the Carbon Neutral Coalition for you know putting this group together because I'm just one voice in. I think the advisory board's got ten or twelve folks on it, and and honestly, it was Corby's vision two years ago. This is not a oh we're in legislature let's talk about this now. You know he is a landowner. He is an energy professional. Saw this, and he and Will both said you know, we should be, we should do exactly what you, Chuck, just said, which is let's, let's bring the knowledge of energy professionals to the folks that are making the decisions. And hopefully we can uh, at least communicate clearly what we know and how we think uh, the best path forward would be on some of these issues to reduce CO2 and possibly a hydrogen economy and all of those other Corby's, I think Corby's always taken his role as as a statesman, if mm-hmm. you will, if we'll use that kind of as a broad term. 
pretty seriously, and he, yeah. he ought to get respect for that because well, he he could he could have done a lot of other things in life, but I think he's always wanted to make a contribution. And he's hugely active. If he were sitting here, he could give you the bill names and the legislation. <laughs> like he, I mean, the guy. It's it's always amazing to me to be on a call with that group. That advisory board is so impressive. Um, I feel like the dumb kid in the smart kids class, uh, and and especially then, you know, he's he's got it all down. All right. Last thing I'm going to say on the podcast because I've got to give a shout out. Last night at dinner, my 17 year old daughter Sarah proclaimed that in 1972, the Libertarians actually earned one electoral college vote in the presidential election. And me, the self-proclaimed Libertarian, did not know that. Wow. True statement. So there you go. There you go. Dave, thanks for coming on and talking about this. Well, thank you for having me. And it's good to see you. And, you know, let's do it again and talk about other cool stuff. Awesome. Thanks, dude. Great.